At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the former Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where he is now a Senior Advisor. He is also uh, the Senior Director of the Center for Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, Mark, thanks so very much for joining us, especially on such short notice. I thank you, Vago. Real pleasure to be with you again. It's uh, it's great to have you uh, on. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Mark, uh, you, Congressman Gallagher, the co-chairman of the commission, uh, met at the Reagan National Defense Forum uh, in person for an interview uh, uh, for this program. And unfortunately, we to scrap it because last night the Senate stripped uh, from the National Defense Authorization Act or its version of the NDAA important legislation that would have required companies uh, to report cyber intrusions and ransomware attacks to the Department of Homeland Security as well as uh, the National Security Agency within 24 hours of a breach being detected. That being a critical uh, element uh, to try to contain uh, damage, uh, you know, whether it was solar winds or a number of these other attacks. Uh, indeed, lawmakers had hoped to pass this important uh, legislation. Uh, one of the commission's recommendations on the first anniversary of the solar winds hack that was actually re- revealed by FireEye, uh, not by any of the of the companies uh, affected or even the government agencies affected. Unfortunately, Rick Scott, one of the two uh, Florida Republican senators, went directly to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, to get the language changed. Where, where do we stand right now um, in, in terms of getting this important, right? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about language being you know, honed and machined, but, but uh, the bus looks like it's already sailed, right? Where are we? Thanks, Vago. And, uh, and uh, you know, we've all seen the text now, the NDAA. And, and I first want to say I'm comfortable with a lot of the mundane. Um, we had a number, you know, we have a, about 11 different provisions in there that are either directly from our report or, or things that committees did that are similar with our recommendations. So I'm, in that sense, I'm, I'm excited because a lot of cybersecurity is about blocking and tackling. So these are things about, you know, making sure that cyber command has the right budget control responsibilities, getting coordination, public-private coordination going between um, cyber command and the private sector, um, you know, uh, doing uh, the, the cybersecurity of weapon systems, which GAO has been you know, you know, uh, throttling the, the DOD on for the last three years, um, making sure we get the assessments of the cyber resilience of the nuclear command and control system. Um, and some things that are even outside DOD, like a national cyber exercise program, some strengthening of CISA, continued strengthening of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, a really exciting pilot program of public-private partnerships with internet ecosystem companies that will help detect adversary cyber operations that involves both DHS through CISA and DOD 
uh, through NSA and the National Cyber Director, and then some basic strengthening of the National Cyber Director's um, uh, hiring authorities. But you're right. The two kind of big things we were trying to push through, one was uh, supporting the incident reporting, which Senator Peters had personally championed along with Senator Porters, uh, with Senator Port uh, Portman, and then and then the uh, what we called our joint collaborative environment, one of the undergirdings of CISA's uh, joint cyber defense collaborative, um, did not get done. And, and you ask, where's the status of it? I, I think it's going to be hard. I don't see a, a I don't see a path to having incident reporting in the in the NDAA. I think the voting is very close. I think really the pages have been turned, so to speak. Um, that doesn't mean you can't get incident reporting done either as a standalone bill or put into another bill. Um, and then I think Senator Peters is gonna have to make a decision. There's two parts to the incident reporting bill. There's the part that that um, that mirrors very much what the House had and what the Cyberstate Commission recommended, which was, hey, report, you know, everyone needs to report their incidents to CISA and CISA would share it with the rest of the government um, as, as appropriate uh, um, within 72 hours. And if you don't do it, you know, there's a way for the government to have subpoena authority to look for it, things like that. Um, uh, and then there's a second part that was added by Senate in the, in the Senate uh, version, which had to do with rants, reporting ransomware payments. And I think you, you avert to like a Senator Scott amendment and, and then work with the Republican leadership to kind of spike the uh, provision for being in the NDAA. In, in fairness, right? I mean, uh, at least based on the reporting we've seen, uh, you know, Senator Scott's concern was that it may be too onerous for a lot of smaller businesses, uh, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, you know more about what his objection yeah. was than, than I do at this point. No, you're right. Uh, there's a, a small business aspect to this. But, but I'll tell you, we need to learn. We do need to learn the scope of the of the challenge we got. And I'm sorry, that means people have to report things. And 72 hours is a reasonable reporting standard. Having to report a ransomware attack, a ransomware payment is a reasonable requirement. Um, if we don't get this data, we're not gonna understand the scope of this because so little is reported routinely by the companies, right. for, mostly for reputational damage prevention, you know, to prevent reputational damage. That it's very hard for the government to get the scope and scale of this. Imagine if like banks, you know, decided to not report 80% of bank robberies. How would you set the, how many detectives you need in a city or how many beat cops do you need? I mean, this is a ludicrous position that's being taken by the private sector, you know, in terms, and I, I should be careful here, but a lot of the private sector supported the instant reporting bill, but it's a ludicrous uh, position to take to say, we don't want to know inappropriate behavior that's being done, that's either being done by, you know, adversary nation states or cyber criminal actors. We need to know this is happening so that we can understand the scope and scale of the criminal behavior so we can build the appropriate level of defenses. Think of any other criminal activity where the kind of like, the, the, well, you know, you really don't need to report that. It's okay. Right. You're a small company. That's, I'm afraid I don't accept that logic on its, on its face. Um, I, I should I should also point out um, something that you and I have discussed, and I think the cyber community uh, understands. Very small companies can have very discreet and very important information that that a a adversary nation state is trying to get. They're trying to build a mosaic. They may need a specific piece of information, and so saying that well, you know, that information is just in Montgomery and Meridian. 
no longer really hacks it, does it? An even better example, what if your small company is part of the supply chain providing um, cybersecurity software products to medium and large size companies in the government? I, I need to know that you were penetrated so that I can look at your product that you're providing me and determine if it has had malware installed in it. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the companies that provide a lot of the software that undergirds our, our, our infrastructure of interconnectivity are done by small and medium, at, at best medium-sized companies and often small companies. So they're absolutely the target set of the adversary. If you set some threshold but beneath which you don't need to report things, the adversary will establish a threshold beneath which they're going to attack. Um, how convinced are you, Mark, that follow-up standalone legislation is going to be possible uh, on this? Uh, because we we have an adversary that's moving very, very quickly. We made enormous gains, and that's uh, you know a lot of the credit goes to the Solarium Commission. Uh, and the great work it did, obviously, with Mike Gallagher as co-chairman and Angus King, uh, the uh, senator from independent senator from Maine uh, and U.S. executive director. But Chris Inglis was on that panel. Uh, a lot of other uh, luminaries were on it. Chris, obviously, over at the White House now. How, how convinced are you that you can regain lost momentum on something which is actually foundational and vitally important for the mission? So I break that into two, two answers. The first is on the mundane stuff, we have momentum. It's happening. This is fantastic work by the Armed Services Committees and Homeland Security Committees in the, uh, in the House and Senate. They got a lot done. And I mentioned 11 or 12 that I think, you know, have their genesis in, in Cyber Solarium Commission, either very directly or, or uh, reasonably directly. But there were another 41 provisions that just came from those committees and they're really useful and they make the DOD cyber policy and operations more effective and efficient. And they help Department of Homeland Security as well. And the intelligence uh, and the intelligence committee as well. Now, how do we get the momentum on these big issues? I I'm not worried. You have leaders like Yvette Clark and John Katko in the house, Peters and Senators Peters and Portman and, and, and King in the Senate. Uh, and then you have Jim Langevin in the house behind it all. You know, that's six or seven leaders. Uh, and I throw Mike Gallagher in there in the house as well uh, on the armed services side. You know, that's six or seven leaders that are committed to this, that drive staff efforts. And then they, we have high quality staffs in those areas I mentioned. Now, look, we still struggle sometimes with committee staffs and members outside of that kind of core that are dealing with cyber every day. But I think we'll slowly we'll bring we'll bring them around. We will get these these big picture things done. We we also lost FISMA reform, um, uh, you know, the Federal Information Security Management uh, right. reform, which I think uh, which uh, um, the hit the Homeland Security staff in the Senate has been working hard on for Senator Peters, and, and I think we'll get that back too. And we you know we made a, a, an intentional decision to push systemically important critical infrastructure into next year. So we have that to pick up. So we have three or four really big things to work next year. I promise you, if we had a dozen mundane things this year, we'll have a dozen mundane things next year in the bill that also make a difference. You know, they make us more efficient and effective and authorizing and appropriating to deal with cybersecurity. So I, I am generally optimistic 
that the system is functioning. And I think the Cybersecurity Commission had something to do with that. But I also think the leadership of those six or seven members I mentioned had as much to do with it. And Mark, give us a quick update on what's going on on the House side of things, uh, right? Uh, you know, where where are we in 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 the process? Well, that's a great point, uh, Vago, because in addition to the NDA, this year we were able to. There's quite a bit of cyber that was inside the. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which was passed, and that's great. So you can bank three or four of our commission recommendations, but really eight or ten big cyber issues. There's a little bit of cyber in the uh, in the Build Back Better bill, which has gone from the House now to the Senate. I think that cyber will be preserved. It was already cut a little bit, um, but there's about five hundred million dollars there. That's good stuff that that I, that we support uh, and that meets some of our recommendations, but also are broader than that. And then, of course, there's left in the House. The United States Innovation and Competition Act, also known as a China bill, it has the CHIPS Act in it, it has a, a large part of the Endless Frontiers Act that uh, Representative Ro Khanna and Mike Gallagher put together to help our R&D efforts um, uh, with China. And, uh, and so uh, getting that through um, would be getting that through the, the House uh, would be very important. And if the House makes some changes, it'd be great if they added some of the stuff that got left out of the NDA. I don't think that's likely. But as long as if they could just get that through the House, you'd get another four or five big um, uh, authorizations and even more appropriations that contribute to our cybersecurity readiness. So to me, though, that's kind of the big thing in the House. And as I said, in the Senate, there's the uh, however they handle the reconciliation or build back better bill. Uh, so two more opportunities over the next one, you know, one to two months uh, to get some cybersecurity things done. We're not having conference uh, anymore because of the way this is structured, right? So there is no conference process at this point. I'm not sure. It really depends how the House handles the USACA or United States Innovation Competition Act. You know, and I can't speak to whether they would have to then conference back a slightly different bill version and how they'd handle it. That's a leadership issue. I'm, I'm not going to uh, understate the importance of, uh, for example, um, addressing known hardware and software vulnerabilities in our weapon systems, right? I mean, GAO is absolutely right to be putting pressure on, on, the, on this program. We talk about it a little bit like a broken record, uh, but that's in part because it doesn't really matter how great your bombers and your ships and your uh, combat vehicles are if they can potentially be knocked offline because of uh, a very thoughtful uh, uh, cyber uh, operation. You know, we, we've talked about what's going on up on the uh, hill where awareness is improving. Uh, you know, there's a very, very solid team that's in the administration uh, now. We mentioned Chris Inglis being one of them. Uh, Ann Newberger, of course, uh, is uh, is on the team uh, on the National Security Council as well. And you have Jen uh, Easterly and, and a lot of other talented cyber savvy people across this administration, perhaps more cyber savvy people across this administration than any administration we've had. W walk us through the things the administration is doing to drive the bus, uh, because there is a very ambitious agenda that Chris Inglis, uh, you know, is out there evangelizing on, on, on an almost daily basis. So first, you're absolutely correct. We are fortunate to have a team um, in the executive branch, you know, with Ann Newberg at the National Security Council, Chris Inglis, National Cyber Director, I'd say Rob Joyce at the uh, Cybersecurity Division at uh, uh, at um, National Security Agency, Jen Easterly at CISA at the Department of Homeland Security, and General Nakasone at Cyber Command. That is a you know world class team, and so we're fortunate to have them. I think that they're responding, and obviously they the the political points in that group dropped in on on top of Solar Winds, and then right in the face of the Microsoft Exchange um, server hack. So 
Um, you know, this is a, uh, you know, they have been focused, they have done a lot of work, uh, executive branch work and, and uh, on this, including several executive orders on cybersecurity, on supply chain, um, on information, uh, on industrial control systems, um, and then some uh, 100 day sprints at DHS and CISA on specific cybersecurity issues. So I really think um, a lot's going on there. They're trying to tackle ransomware. I think ransomware is bigger than we really understand. So I, I think it's going to take more than executive orders to really handle, rans handle ransomware. And that's exactly what Senator Peters thought and putting forward some of the changes that, that did not make it. Um, but I think the executive branch has done good work there. I, I, I will say across all the sectors, sector risk management agencies, the, you know, there's 16 critical infrastructures. And so there's sector risk management agencies that manage the government's relationship with those critical infrastructures. That's probably where we still have some inconsistency you know, in the financial services regulation, we have some pretty you know, um, high-speed regulation. You know, some, I'm sure, if I was a bank, I think maybe over-regulation, but still good cybersecurity regulation. The part, the what's called the um, CSER at the Department of Energy does a fantastic job working uh, with the electricity infrastructure and, and energy. Uh, and uh, but there's other areas. We saw some weaknesses in pipeline security uh, during the colonial event. And uh, you know, I've reported with the Foundation of Defense of Democracies a pretty, a pretty tough report on the Environmental Protection Agency and the water and wastewater sector. So there's some inconsistencies there. But from the White House itself, I think real leadership uh, that I think matches what's going on in the legislative branch. And it's going to take both elements working aggressively over three to four years to get, uh, you know, to a, a, a reasonably secure spot um, in, in our cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection. I want to um, go uh, and ask you about um, some some of your takeaways uh, from the Reagan Forum in a, in a second. But you mentioned that that you you fear that people do not understand the full magnitude of the ransomware problem. Explain that. What do you think people are getting well, wrong? So, well, I think we don't we can't measure it, which which. From the limited interaction we have with, say, uh, lawyers that give us advice, but also give advice to um, companies, um, you know, probably 85 to 88 percent, you know, some very high percentage of ransomware uh, payments go unreported. Or even ransomware attacks go unreported. They're only reported if they end up impacting critical infrastructure so people see it and experience it. Or if there's a leak from the IT department or the C-suite or the board of directors that, hey, we had a ransomware incident. Um, you know, it, it is not reported. I think potentially up to eight out of 10 or even nine out of 10 uh, incidents aren't being reported. Um, that's what I'm fearful of is this. We do not under, we're estimating the scope and scale of the problem, but we don't know the scope and scale of the problem. Uh, you and I were both at the Reagan Forum, start to finish. Uh, it was another great conference, uh, as usual, a great opportunity this year in person, right? We didn't convene last year at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum. This year, everybody was in person, uh, masked uh, when, when necessary uh, for, for most of the event, unless you were eating and drinking. Um, 
what were some of the key takeaways from you, right? I mean, you were J3 uh, at U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, you uh, were on Senator McCain's staff, uh, and you are a strategist and a, and a thinker in this field, Mark, uh, not not to overstate it. What did, what did you hear that was interesting, right? Long Aquilino uh, was there. General Nakasone was there. I know you tuned in for the cyber panel and were paying attention to what was being said from an Indo-Pacific standpoint. Um, you know, folks were driving home the message of urgent change. We heard that from uh, Defense Secretary Austin. Uh, he, he, he didn't underplay the challenges. He said, we've got big challenges. We're very focused adversary, uh, fielding a lot of capability. But hey, don't make the mistake of making them 10 feet tall. And we do have, you know, we... We historically have found ourselves in this position and we've excelled because of the inherent advantages of our system, uh, right? Frank Kennel drove his message of speed. What were some of the other uh, things that you heard as a nuanced listener uh, among all of these sort of higher level bumper sticker stuff that you thought was was interesting? So first, in the cyber panel, uh, it was very good. I mean, they really had the right team there, the, the right panelists. And really, that speaks to how well executed that forum is every year to really have the right speakers there, the right moderators to, to get it. There was a great discussion there that went right to the cyber implications of a, of, a, of a crisis or contingency in Taiwan. And both the vulnerability that we would experience in our homeland as we try to develop, you know, force, you know, to do force mobilization and movements, but also signaling to us from the Chinese that, hey, we can do damage to your electrical power grid, your water systems, your financial systems, whatever, um, you know, as we try to make a political decision about how much support we're going to give Taiwan militarily, um, you know, that's a great discussion that, hey, one of, we need to accelerate, you know, the, the, the public-private partnership to secure our critical infrastructures if we're going to be able to maintain, you know, make the political decisions we want to make overseas. But it also got at, are there things we can do for Taiwan to help them with their cyber infrastructure? Because so much critical components, particularly when you think about microchips uh, work is being done in Taiwan that drives the success of our own economy. So really an interesting discussion there on that. And I think something really worth probing over the next uh, three to six months, you know, uh, you know the, 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 the outcomes of just that one panel, you know, of the 11 or 12 panels held. Um, I do think, you know, in the Pacific, um, in, in talking about the Pacific and, the, and the, the roles of allies and partners, there's a good discussion there. I think probably, you know, it wasn't as rich as it could have been about, you know, what is Japan going to do in a Taiwan incident or what is Australia going to do? It was more about the allies and partners that are more building partner capacity, uh, that, that element of it. But there's a there's a lot to be done there, and Lung Aquilino referred to, to much of it. So I thought, or General, uh, Admiral Aquilino, the Indo PACOM commander. So I think that was very useful. Um, I do think, you know, there was a lot of discussion of the force posture, the global force posture review that had just come out. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it's classified. I don't think we benefit from aggregating a lot of unclassified decisions and then classifying the, the conclusion. Um, you know, I think probably we bet, you know, some of the best. Global posture reviews uh, were um, were unclassified. I can think of one in two thousand four. You know that that really kind of stated what we were going to do um, around the world. And I and I and I hope that the elements of our global posture review become clear rapidly, like in the next three to six months, not in the next two to three years. So um, there was a lot of discussion there, though, of the importance of making the right investments. Not everything has to be a dramatic 
you know, movement of an aircraft carrier or something like that, you know, the station of an aircraft carrier. But there's lots of small investments the administration can make that lead to a large, a significant improvement in our deterrent capability against the Chinese. And if deterrence fails, our ability to defeat uh, Chinese, you know, aggression. From those small investments, give us an example. So a good, uh, a good, uh, a good example of a, of a small investment is fully fund the development of deployable airbase sets uh, to be placed in Guam and in Japan. Those are sets that can be thrown on a C-17, flown to a remote expeditionary airfield, popped open, and then you have the maintenance, logistics, and armament support for a uh, you know F-15 EX squadron or an F-35 squadron. Uh, you know, so that they so that the Air Force can employ agile combat, uh, their agile combat employment or ACE um, uh, tactics. Um, those are not that expensive, you know, but they're not something that the Air Force budgeted for. So you, you're real, you know, it's tough on them without, as opposed to when we did the European deterrence initiative, they don't have overseas, um, they don't have OCO money, overseas contingency operations money uh, to re- fall back on. So the services when they buy something because Paycom says they need the small investment, they have to not buy something that Air Force A8 was thinking about procuring. Right. So that's a small investment that would make a difference. A six submarine in in, in uh, Guam would be kind of a larger investment, but you know one of the ones that would send a strong signal that the thing the Chinese most worry about, U.S. Uh, undersea warfare capability, just got a little thicker in the Western Pacific. More submarines are always better. And nobody said, I want fewer submarines out there. And it is a dramatic asymmetric advantage that we have. And in, and in this uh, instance where the Chinese are fielding capabilities uh, that are asymmetric against us, I think flooding as much of that kind of capability to the region. But I think the Navy also has to invest much more, as, 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 as you know, and you and I have talked about, you know, a lot more unmanned capability in the region uh, as well to augment uh, that, uh, that advantage. Let me ask, what didn't you hear that you wanted to hear from, from senior leaders? I would like to have heard Lung Agolino on the Pacific um, panel and talking about the specific things he needs to improve his likelihood of success in a crisis or contingency that might come three or four years from now. You know, Admiral Davidson kind of predicted 2026 as a potential time frame. You know, we need, we really need the lead warfighter in our highest priority region to be out explaining what she or he needs uh, to, to guarantee success. And I just don't think they've come to that conclusion yet internally uh, as a department. And therefore, I don't think they've unleashed their lead ward fighter to start making that comprehensive argument. And, and they need to do it soon because they need to impact the 23 and 24 budget cycles. And you know, the, you know, the, the problem we sometimes have is we wait for that 99% solution and deliver it late. They really need to get to the 80% solution on this and deliver it early so it can impact as many budget cycles as possible. Uh, that would be uh, right. I mean, that's one of the mantras that we hear from Air Force Secretary Kendall, right? Give, yeah. you, know, you need operational capability at scale and speed, uh, as opposed to a bunch of science projects that are looking at ex- exquisite solutions all the time. Uh, I would add one other thing, Lung Aquilino, and whoever is sitting in that chair as the U.S. Indo-Pacific commander is the nation's most important military commander. And as such, what they need needs to get high degree of prioritization. And I fear that it just goes into the mix along with everybody else. 
and and ultimately the capabilities that he or she asks for has to become stuff that goes to the top of the list. And I fear sometimes uh, that that is not the case. Would, would you agree with that? I would. And I contrast this with 15 years ago or 12 years ago in Central Command when we realized we needed MRAPs, you know, to vehicles to survive IEDs. It immediately went into an absolute, you know, into a calculator that, that uh, you know, in a joint acquisition program that rapidly delivered what was required in the battlefield. We just, I, I, we have not assigned that level of prioritization to Indo-PACOM. And it's because we don't have people in immediate uh, jeopardy, you know, of being a fatality. And so that, that's the problem with, the, with prioritization in a, in a contingency environment is much less focused than prioritization in a combat environment. And therefore, we're not getting that, that kind of decision. The services aren't buckling to combatant commander demand signal in this kind of environment. Mark, thanks so much for joining us, especially on such uh, short notice. Uh, look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Vago. It was a real pleasure. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit NorthropGrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.